Hey, my name is Brianna, and you're listening to the FCC Grayson Podcast. God is doing some incredible things here at First Church. To learn more about FCC and maybe plan your visit, head on over to FCCGrayson.com. We hope today's message gives you hope, inspires, and encourages you in your walk with God. Let's dive into today's message. Today we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture of a restoration of a woman at a well. So let's read. We're going to be reading 42 verses, so just kind of dig in, settle in, get comfortable, and I will uh, read this as quickly as possible. But John chapter 4, starting with verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of uh, water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For, there is this, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your presence that we feel in the house today. Thank you for uh, just your, your word, your, um, your promises, everything that you say, everything that you have given to us and blessed us with that we do not deserve. Father, I pray for our time in your word right now. I pray that the reading of your word was pleasing to you, and I ask that we honor and glorify and please you with everything that we say from this point on. And I pray for every heart to be open, and I pray for my voice to be used as an instrument for your Holy Spirit to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So, a little bit of a difference from what we've seen the past couple weeks. What we've done the past few weeks is we have taken the kind of the pinnacle scripture or the really, you know, kind of the turning point scripture in a story, and we've read that, and then we've gone back and we've told the story that led up to that. What was the story? What happened? What were the elements? that made that particular scripture so impactful and so powerful. Well, with this instance of the woman at the well, we don't know anything about her past other than what Jesus reveals to us in this story himself. But there's so much here that uh, obviously I'm not going to be um, expositing 42 verses because, I mean, if we did that, it's a good thing that we have like DoorDash now because we'd all be calling in lunch. But... What I do want us to, to see is how Jesus restores this woman and how he addresses her and how this moment in, in her life, this noon trip to the well to draw water, changed not only the rest of her life, but also changed her eternity as well. Now, there are a few things that I want to point out to us this morning, and the first of that is the placement of this story. John chapter 4 comes right after John chapter 3. Good, good, good. And there's one verse in that particular that really stands out to us, right? John 3 what? 16. Good, good. You're all on a roll this morning. Very good. Who is Jesus having a conversation with in John chapter 3 when verse 16 comes out? No, no, no. John chapter 3. Chapter 3, who's the conversation with? Nicodemus. Nicodemus. So the placement of this story, yeah, there, there's multiple people in that chapter, Jody, you're right. <laughs> Jody's like, I am fact-checking the preacher this morning, and I am going to stand up, and I'm going to walk up there, brother. 
Now, he has a conversation with Nicodemus, and I want us to understand that there is a real significance to this placement, in my opinion, because he's coming off of a conversation with Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader. And if we look at the, the contrast of these two, we see that in John chapter 3, he's speaking to a man. In John chapter 4, he's speaking to a woman. In John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, he is speaking to someone who is extremely influential in his community. In John chapter 4, he's speaking to the woman at the well who would have been considered one of the lowest of lows in her community. He's also talking to someone in Nicodemus in John chapter 3 who would have been very moral and upright in his beliefs and his behavior. And in John chapter 4, we see that that's not the case with the woman at the well. I believe the placement of this, of these stories back to back, show us that not only can Jesus in the element of John chapter 3 reach the most high up and in, but then we go and see in John chapter 4 that he can also reach the down and out. You see, there is no one too high for Jesus, and there's no one too low for Jesus. So don't miss that relevance in this passage, the way that this writing is laid out. Because we see someone who is elevated in society, and Jesus said, listen, unless you have me, unless you're born again, you've got no hope. And then Jesus comes into chapter 4, talking to the woman at the well, the very bottom of the societal ladder. And he's looking at her going, listen, without me, without this living water, without, my, without the Messiah, you have no hope. Folks, I don't care how much money you have, what position of influence you have, what type of power that you possess, or what you think of yourself, whether it be too high or too low, you are nowhere out of the range of Jesus Christ. You are nowhere being beyond his, needing his help or being too bad for him. So understand that as we begin to look at this story of restoration here. There's significance also in the path that we see taken in this story. In verse 4, now remember, this is the disciple John who is writing this gospel. The one whom Jesus loved. Okay? John liked words. He loved articulating things and adding colorful language to things and really painting this picture in our minds and our imagination. So John, who is so wordy, so artsy, so articulate, and so creative, makes a very simple statement in verse 4 when he said, and he had to pass through Samaria. That sounds like, a, that, that sounds like a, a, an Apostle Luke statement. You know, Luke the physician, the details man, give me just the facts, let's run through this thing. But John makes this statement. So what's significant about this path that he took here? As we saw in our reading a little bit earlier, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't mix. And, and we're not going to go into a great big history lesson here. But one of the reasons for that is when the northern kingdom of Israel was overtaken by the Assyrians and led back into captivity, basically, there was, um, you know, the, the, the races mingled and the Assyrians and the Jews, they, they started this own culture and these own people and this own ethnicity. And the, the true Jews considered Samaritans half-breeds. And they had zero to do with them. And there's a reason that this verse 4 is such a pivotal verse is because it said he had to go through Samaria. 
the Jews, if they were trying to get somewhere on the other side of Samaria, they would actually go around, they would cross the River Jordan, not the Michael Jackson song, but they would cross through the River Jordan and go around and out of their way just to avoid going through Samaria. So it was a big deal. There is a, a, a heavy relevance to Jesus having to go through Samaria. I believe that he knew that there was a divine encounter awaiting. I believe that he knew that there was someone there that God had placed in his path. Folks, don't overlook inconveniences in your life. Because sometimes the greatest inconveniences in our minds become the greatest opportunities to serve and to make an impact in someone's life. And if you really have an authentic love with Jesus, I'm not saying that you won't roll your eyes at times to be inconvenienced, but you have a different perspective and you begin to understand that while this is going in a way that I'm, I wouldn't normally go or doing something that I wouldn't normally do, if you're feeling the Holy Spirit lead you into that, I promise you there is a purpose for it. So we see the path, and the path leads him directly to a whole host of problems. And that's verses 7, 8, and 9, where the woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. See, there's that, that, that divide right there. So there's a couple different problems we see here. It was the sixth hour of the day. Now, their days did not start like our days do. We consider midnight the beginning of the day. This would have been, the sixth hour at this point would have been at noon, which is a time that no one goes to draw water because it's in the middle of the heat of the day. They would go at the beginning of the day, and they would all go together, and they would draw the water and take it back before it got warm, before it got really hot. Which, you know, we're coming out of winter now. We're going to have about two and a half days of spring weather, and then the heat's going to start melting our face off here in eastern Kentucky. I mean, that's how it, weather works, right? So she comes at noon in the heat of the day to draw water. And there's a couple problems here. Number one, she shouldn't have been there at that time. Why was she there at that time? Most likely because she was avoiding having to be around. There was a stigma to her. She was not socially accepted. She was an outcast. She was shunned in the society. So she came at a time when no one else would be there. Have you ever, now let, let's, let's step aside from family dynamics of, you know, of, or seeing someone come to the door. Um, you know, whenever you see somebody coming and you do that dive onto the belly uh, in front of the window and make that crawl because you don't want them thinking you're home. I have never done that to any of you all. I've just heard of people doing that. But she's most likely there because she doesn't want to have to face shame. She doesn't want to have to face ridicule. She doesn't want to have to have her past recycled over and over and over again. So she comes at a time when no one else is there. Then she makes this statement of, what are you, a man, a Jewish man, doing, speaking to a Samaritan woman. There's two violations here. There's two problems. Number one, a man talking to another woman who wasn't his wife. That would have been grounds for a divorce in this culture. 
Hey, how are you? You know, the, the, the famous Eastern Kentucky thing, you can walk by, hey, how's your mom and them? You know, that, was, that was not allowed. And then we have the Samaritan Jew issue here. So there's two big problems that she notices right away. And then Jesus starts into this, uh, into this conversation. And one of the real relevant things about this, um, another about, about the placement, is... This is the longest recorded conversation that we have of Jesus in the New Testament. So we can't overlook the significance of what we're taught in this passage because at no other I'm not saying that there was never a longer conversation. I'm just saying that this is the longest recorded recorded conversation that we have in the New Testament involving Jesus. And that's with a woman who is considered the lowest of lows in a place at a time that she really shouldn't have been there. That would have marked her shame, that would have marked her guilt, that would have marked and reminded her of her past and her failures and all of her flaws. That's what God's Word highlights as the longest conversation that we have recorded. Jesus, and, and this is funny, I don't have a whole lot of time to spend here, but this woman is good at deflecting conversations. Because Jesus says in verses 16, he said, after he tells her about the living water, Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right. In saying that, I have no husbands, for you've had five husbands. And the one that you're with now is not your husband, because what you've said is true. And then... Sir, I perceive you to be a prophet. Let's talk about worship a little bit, all right? Let's get off of this whole topic of me and my past. But you know, I think that we kind of look at the woman at the well with a little bit maybe of an unfair negativity in our perception of her. Because, I mean, I'm not trying to make the uh, case that she is moral, she's upright, she's a victim. I'm just saying that, you know, most likely she's not had five husbands who have passed away. But I think it would be real easy in our minds for us to think that she would have been the cause and the problem for all of these things when I just mentioned culturally that if you spoke to a person of the opposite sex, that would have been grounds for your husband during the cultural times to put you away as his wife. But Jesus makes this statement that you, you're right, you were truthful. There was a transparent statement that came from her that said that, yes, I don't have a husband. And then we start seeing a little bit of purpose play out here. I, I want us to understand that there's always a purpose to the restoration of God in our lives. God doesn't just restore you just to restore you. God doesn't just forgive you just so you can be forgiven. God redeems you. God sets you on a different path. God changes not only your temporal things, but he changes your eternal things. He changes spiritual. He doesn't, he doesn't always change the external. We looked at Peter two weeks ago, and we marked that as, listen, Peter was not, once he was restored, it wasn't like he went to being socially accepted, and everybody was just like, oh, okay, Peter, Jesus restored him. Now we're going to accept this dude, all right? No, Peter died a martyr's death. 
He paid the ultimate price for his beliefs, for his, his belief, his Christianity, this passion that he had in him. He was not accepted. As a matter of fact, the persecution and the suffering in Peter's life only grew and only escalated as his life went on. But yet Peter never, ever again, after his restoration, never did he deny Christ again. So we have to first get in our minds that restoration isn't always going to set us on this perfect path of acceptance. It's not always going to provide us an increase in our bank account or a promotion at work or less arguments within our family or less of a frustration as we live through life and there's not going to be near as many problems. No, that's not the case at all. We also looked and we see Joseph. Joseph was one that after he kind of finished the roller coaster, he was one that was restored to a higher place on a societal level. He became second in command. He found favor. But even at that, Joseph still messed up because do you know that the system that Joseph developed in order to sustain the nations around them through the drought was the very system that led to Israel's enslavement and bondage? The one that Moses had to come in and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Y'all don't understand how hard it is for me to say that statement without doing it because I had someone very early on in my life, he told me that the way he always remembered what happened with, with Moses was that he, he thought that, that uh, Moses sounded like Elmer Fudd. Yeah, let that one sink in there for just a minute. Because Moses was telling God that I'm not good at speech, right? And his, hey, whoa, <laughs> let my people go. You know, I, I, that's really difficult for me to say without saying it like Pharaoh, or like Elmer Fudd, sorry. But that system was the thing that led to the Israelite bondage. Know this, that the woman at the well, she had gotten herself in this trouble. She may not have been 100% to blame, may not have been 100% at fault, but you know what? She was there because of her actions, mostly. After Jesus had this encounter with her, after she had seen the Messiah, after she'd spoken to him and he had restored her, she did not go back to a societal elevation. She was still an outcast. Her past was still her past. Her story was still her story. Her external circumstances didn't necessarily change, but what did change was internal and eternal. God's not so concerned with our temporal matters. We are, we are absolutely consumed with things of the temporal, with things of the now, things of the tomorrow, things of retirement, things of what we experience here on earth. We are all about temporal things. And I'm not saying that God doesn't care about those, but God is more concerned about what's going on in you internally and where you are going to wind up eternally. And that's what God's restoration is all about. Whether he's restoring you from things that are your fault or not. Whether he's restoring you back to a societal elevation spot or not. Or whether you're still going to be unchanged in the eyes of society. I promise you this. If you have been restored by Jesus Christ, you are internally different. You are a new creation. And your eternity is now one of which will be with him in glory. Not separated from him. That is is the restorative love of God. And that is something we should be incredibly thankful for. Amen? Amen. Thank you. All right. So let's look at kind of this purpose because we see a purpose in her life take place like, boom, as soon as she leaves. 
Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that he, I ever did. Verse 29, she goes back in. 28 and 29 says, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She had an encounter with Jesus. And the first thing that she did was she went back and shared what had just happened to her. She shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. She shared the good news that the Messiah had come. And not only had the Messiah come, but the Messiah had restored her. He had redeemed her. He had touched her heart. Christians, let me submit something to you this morning. An authentic relationship with Jesus Christ should give you no other option but to proclaim Him to everyone you can. If you are not sharing Jesus Christ regularly with those around you, I, I, would, I would recommend you taking some inventory. If He is not one of the main things that flows from your lips, if He's not the conversation that's totally... If you're not looking for opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who are lost, hurting, dying, and spent and bound for an eternity apart from God in hell, if those things are not consuming you, then you need to question the authenticity of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because all through Scripture... We see people who, when they encounter Jesus Christ, they have no other choice, but they run and they tell others about it. Even when Jesus goes, hey man, can we keep this on the low? Do you, do you mind if we not talk about this? I just saw Jesus. It's amazing. That's how it happened. That's exactly how that happened. But when you have an authentic experience and an encounter with Jesus Christ, it changes your life. And it should change the way that you approach your conversations to everyone around you. What is the value of your life in Christ? Is your life value making a difference in the culture? Or is it in the temporal, in the external? Or is it about witnessing and sharing the gospel and the love and the good news of Christ with those internally to change their eternity? So here's a couple things that I want us to, to take away from this this morning as we close. I think that as we go back, when we, when we looked at uh, verses 3 through 6 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, um, you know, that's where it's talking about predestination uh, to adoption. That's talking about being chosen. Uh, and, and we talked a little bit about that concept. The one thing that we arrived at that I want to make sure that I'm reminding us of is that no matter who it is, no matter what their background, no matter what their history, no matter what failures, or successes that they've had, our job is to indiscriminately share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, even with the people you don't like. Yes, even with the people that you don't think deserve it. Yes, even the people who fundamentally disagree with you on everything that they could possibly disagree with you. You are to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with them because that's what we're called to do. It's not up to you who gets picked and who gets chosen, who gets left out, who doesn't get to hear. 
when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're looking at someone or a group of people who may be different from you fundamentally and you look at them and you say that I'm not going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them because I can't talk to them, then you have just put yourself in the seat of God. And you've made a determination that they're not worthy to hear the good news of Jesus. And when we get there, that's dangerous ground. Because we will stand in judgment for that. So we are to indiscriminately share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think secondly, don't always despise when you're taken back to your place of greatest failures. We talked about this a little bit with with Peter whenever Jesus brought him in front of the charcoal, which would have no doubt reminded him of his place of greatest denial of, of Christ. Think about the setting for this, this woman, this Samaritan woman who's at the well. She came at an odd time. She came at a place that would have reminded her of her failures because had she not had failures, she would have been coming with everyone else during the morning time. So every time that she had to come alone, every time that she didn't have someone with her, every time that she didn't have a friend she could lean on, every time she didn't have someone that she could reach out to, she was reminded of her great failures. But notice what happens in this moment when her greatest failure at this place, at this well where she should be with other people, but she finds herself alone, she finds herself face to face with the Savior of the world. Sometimes when you're taken taken back to your place of greatest failure, that's the time of your greatest restoration. Don't let your enemy always convince you that that's just to beat you up. Sometimes Jesus takes you back there just so he can remind you of how far he's brought you. That was pretty good. I think it deserved at least one amen. And lastly, I think that we learn something from the approach that Jesus takes here. Now, let's let's not make any kind of mistake here. Let's understand the roles in this story. We are not in the role of Jesus, okay? None of us. I don't care how holy you think you are or how pious of a life that you try to live. You're not in the role of Jesus in this story, okay? We are all the woman at the well, And we find ourselves at that place over and over and over and over again in our lives that we need the restoration of the Savior. But I do think that there are things from this story that we can pull from it and we can implement in our own lives and as we relate to one another as to how biblical love works. Notice that Jesus was very calm when he did this. Notice that Jesus didn't have to have a crowd around her to point it out. Notice that Jesus didn't wag a finger. He didn't tell her, you know, you know better than this. You you know what's going on. I can't believe you did this. Jesus just recognizes the truth, and then he changes her life. You see, in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, we see Paul talking about immorality within the church and problems within the church. Paul makes this statement that's kind of countercultural to what we feel as believers. There is a, there's a real importance, and we've not talked about it a lot yet. It, it will come. But there is a heavy level of importance on what it means to be a member of a local church biblically. And accountability is one of those things. But Paul is writing to the church at Corinth where they're having some issues with immorality, and they're having to address problems within the church. Paul says to them, what business is it of ours to judge the sin of those outside the church? 
Do you not know that it is our responsibility to take care and judge those within the church? You see, we've got that backwards in our culture. Because we as a church, we as a people, we believe that, hey, we need to be shouting from the rooftops about the, about the sin of the world, and we will absolutely stand back and act shocked and astonished whenever sinners sin. <sighs> Can you imagine that somebody that doesn't know Jesus would do something like that? Yeah, it's called sin. But we feel like it's our job to point out and call out and judge all of the sin that's outside of the church. But preacher, don't you dare judge me for my sin. Brother, sister, don't you dare point out the flaws in my life. But that's exactly what Paul's telling us to do. It's that we, we hold each other accountable. Now, it's done in love. Don't get me wrong. Okay? And we were given in Matthew chapter 18 the way of restoring, the biblical restoration of a fallen brother or a fallen sister. But we have to understand that Jesus is giving us something here that when we know that something's not right in someone's else, someone else's life, we see the, the Apostle James talking about it too. Is that we need to love one another so much that we're not going to allow sin to get a foothold in their lives. We're going to go to them and we're going to gently, meekly, and lovingly restore them just the way that Jesus did with the woman at the well. Praise team would come up now at this time, please. I want to close with this. I think that sometimes the church has had it wrong in the way that we bring people into fellowship and the way that we bring them into the family and that we love them and we, we see restoration taking place in their lives. It's because sometimes I feel like the three-step process that, that we kind of go through is that you first you have to behave, and then secondly, you have to believe, and then thirdly, you can belong. When you get your behavior right, then you can start believing in Jesus. And then when you start believing in Jesus and your behavior is right, then you can belong here. Can I submit this to you that that's not the proper order that those need to be in? First, you believe then you belong. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you repent and you turn your heart towards him and you're baptized, you are now a part of the family. So if you believe you belong, we'll help you through the behavior. Because all of us are on that journey of what we call sanctification, one of those Bible terms. Believe, belong, behave. Be restored. And this morning, understand that if you've had an authentic encounter with Jesus Christ, then you will be sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with others.